And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. Uh, and in this episode, we're going to be um, kind of touching on a couple of th- uh, a couple of themes that we've uh, we've covered in a few places before. Um, specifically, we're going to be talking about this um, this article that came out like very recently um, called uh, Microsoft and the Yeoman Coders, which was published in Jacobin and written by Gavin Mueller. And we'll also be kind of reading from a few a few sort of like materials that are sort of slightly related to that. But um, yeah, this this was a sort of an interesting um, interesting jumping off point uh, to kind of talk about just open source software in general. Like we've we've wanted to talk about this for a while, but um, this was the, the opportunity to do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know the sort of uh, the the core of this article that it leads off on is is the um, acquisition by Microsoft of GitHub and what that means for coders, right? What does that mean for open source? Uh, What labor relations does that imply going forward? What organizational forms does that imply going forward? I think that this has, you know, it's, it's been a real sort of Shock to some, I think that uh, Microsoft would buy GitHub, right? Because you know these are traditionally sort of antithetical concepts, right? That you know Microsoft has a history of being uh, sort of incredibly uh, hostile to open source software, um, and GitHub is you know the the hive brain of open source <laughs> software out there. Um, yeah. Like pretty much, um, and like so for for maybe a bit of clarity for the listeners, like um, the significance of GitHub is that like if you're if you're do if you're making software, you should be using a like version control system uh, to like you know version things properly. Um, and one of the one of the sort of big sort of systems for that is to use a program called Git, um, which basically you just like commit changes into it and it keeps this like immutable record of everything that changed. So you can see the history of your project and all that sort of nice stuff. And it, it beats the hell out of like copying the file and renaming it, you know, whatever, underscore one, and then having underscore final and all this kind of crap and underscore final, underscore one. Um, but, yes, um, the, the sort of things that editors do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So like, coders in general have a better system for this sort of stuff. But um, GitHub was a, uh, and, and still is, I don't know why I referred to it in the past tense, but uh it's a it's sort of a web site where you can like host all this kind of all these like git repositories and it kind of like it had that kind of really interesting combination of like essentially project hosting for open source stuff like you'd have the the actual code would go there and like bug tracking and a few other little bits of project management features but it was also like a social kind of site it was kind of like the myspace of, of coding or whatever um yeah which is probably why microsoft decided to acquire it because they already own linkedin so it kind of makes <laughs> sense but um yes there's the, that social network aspect of github is is essential yeah it's like um because like when like that acquisition was announced a couple of weeks ago or i suppose by, by the time this airs probably a couple of months ago but um yeah, huge, huge consternation amongst the kind of um, hacker sort of community um, or communities. And like a lot of really sort of like a head scratching and kind of like, oh, what are we going to do now? Because, um, yeah, I think everyone was at least subconsciously aware that like the network effects of GitHub and its kind of social aspect had really drawn everyone into this um, this very pleasant honey trap, right, that like could be acquired by 
a giant corporation and like like it's you you could kind of see the these ideas crystallizing in people's minds that like oh god actually maybe this kind of centralization is kind of a bad deal right because it enables this sort of um sweeping takeover of a resource that is treasured by the community you know Right. And it's it's really quite interesting because I uh, don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but Git is an inherently decentralized way of doing version control. Uh, but what we arrived at um, in the industry uh, was actually a centralized implementation of Git. Yeah, um, yeah, very much so, um, which is kind of upsetting. But um Anyway, so the the like um, the author kind of goes through a bit of the the history of this. Like, why why is this such a surprising thing? And it's because, well, essentially, in the development of like personal computing and software development, you have two kind of parallel tracks that uh, developed over the last couple of decades. With one track being, uh, you know, proprietary uh, commercial and uh, and like corporate software, sort of like you know your Microsoft and your IBM and that sort of thing, uh, and your Oracle um, to a sort of slightly lesser extent, but. Uh, the other track then is like hobbyist sort of stuff of like um, hackers and tinkerers sort of messing with computers and like then sharing the results of what they'd found um, and kind of this this like grassroots sort of like hacker culture. Um, the, these these two different strains were like in very direct sort of conflict with each other. That like I mean, Bill Gates had that kind of like legendary. Um, uh, it's, it's mentioned in the article, but like a, a letter, an open letter to the Homebrew Computing Club, basically accusing them of being thieves, right? That like, well, you know, har- hardware must be paid for and therefore software must be pay- paid for as well. Um, and he was he, he was setting up this dichotomy between like um, the, the, the professional corporate developers as like the legitimate way of doing software development and like the hacker thing as being just like kids fucking around and like stealing stuff, which um, is... Which is right. Um, <laughs> basically, saying that you know sharing is theft. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like uh, how fucking uh, dare they? Right. Like the, the the we're gonna get into some pudol later on here, but uh, the opposite of property is theft. It's is sharing is theft. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but like this, this is then in like kind of contrast with like the actual the hacker ethos, which was that like, you know, if you're participating in this kind of um, this this community, you have an obligation to contribute back. Um, that like if you because y- you would have learned to like develop software by looking at the content of other people's work. So when you develop your own. It's only right to sort of contribute back and make it, make your stuff available. Yeah, it's uh, the difference between a sort of um, copyright policed uh, marketplace uh, versus a, a intellectual commons. Yeah, um, um, yeah, definitely. And like I think that intellectual commons is, is definitely the right way to put it. That like, um, yeah, there was there was this sense of like. Um, the open source movement being a a like digital commons that would be like in in sort of like um kind of maintaining like um an authentic and non-alienated form of kind of relation to between the creators and the stuff they're creating and you know it's it's actually like we'll we'll get to it a bit later but it's kind of debatable um how I think it's very debatable how true that remains today, right? Because I think you can identify at least two distinct generations of um, of hackers, and I, I use the term hackers very very broadly to kind of mean um, 
you know, enthusiast coders and, you know, act through to actual hackers in the security sense, you know. <laughs> right. What what the what the term originally meant, um, as opposed to what the, the news media defined it as. Yeah, exactly. Um, so like the, the term originally meant like hacking in the sense of like using a hatchet to like chop wood and make things, you know, that's sort of like um like kind of um, MacGyvering bits of bits and pieces together. Um, <laughs> yeah. in, you know, like if, if, if something is a hack job, it's like, you know, um, a piece of furniture that you wouldn't want to actually use because it's so roughly assembled. But um, <laughs> it's, that that's what the, the root of the metaphor is. But um, this, this sort of stuff was, was kind of exemplified by this, like um, Richard Stallman, who is uh, probably familiar to a lot of people who are even remotely close to computer science. But um, this, this guy was big, big into like um, creating like uh, what he called like copyleft licenses that would like preserve like um, this, this kind of like culture and, um, and the freedoms to like use software and to publish it on on the community's own terms, um, yeah. Which was this real sort of like judo flip kind of maneuver that he did with uh, with copyright, right? Which he he turned the copyright system against itself by making it uh, a thing that promoted sharing instead of um, property hoarding. Mm, yeah, it's a, it's really really good and innovative stuff, and I think like it's. It's one of those things that's worth sort of pondering is like where where would we be now without Stallman? Um, kind of, he's he's one of these really sort of interesting characters in that like he's quite sort of um, obtuse and like kind of hard to get along with, but he has this like unnerving habit of being right all the time about everything. <laughs> you know, that, like, he had so many predictions for how. Um, you know, proprietary sort of software would would be this sort of like contagious way of like um, entrapping people's rights. And he had, I think, like essays from the from the nineties about um, yeah about things, think predicting things like the you know the Amazon Kindle sort of system where you have like DRM on books and stuff. And every everyone at the time thought he was a lunatic, but then like looking back, it's like no, Stallman got it basically right. <laughs> like he got more or less a hole in one <laughs> right from the start. Um, yeah. But the, the copy the copy left bit is is the interesting thing here because it's like there's this very very distinct split between these two completely separate worlds um, and very very antagonistic like mutually antagonistic worlds of um, of software development um, and the, the, the one of the big things about the split is the character of how the creators and the workers actually relate to their work right like that if you're if you're in the Microsoft camp with the proprietary stuff. Um, it is explicitly corporate, right, and explicitly capitalist that, like, you perform the labor and then the product of that labor is taken away and, you know, uh, sold for, um, sold by the bosses. But, like, on the other side, it's, like, this much more sort of, like, closer to, like, an artisanal relationship between the uh, the producer and the, the work that is produced. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, at least ideally that was the, the idea, yeah. Yeah. Um, which, is, which is interesting because, like... Um, I, like it's it's hard to think of almost anything else really in the last half century that like actually has this kind of character and is also mainstream, like because everything is built on this stuff now. This this open source software, right? Um, and it forms like this this substrate of um, of just like digital infrastructure that is essential to the functioning of everything. But it has this like re- weirdly kind of like not it's like it's it's sort of roots and its inspiration are this like explicitly non-capitalist sort of way of um, way of operating. 
Right. Um, yeah. And I mean, that does make it a matter of considerable interest. And I think what this article is sort of addressing is the contradictions that are implied with having that kind of ethos and that productive form become the backbone of contemporary capitalism, right? Like, so what does that end up doing and what does that mean for workers? Yeah, definitely. Like, and, um, it's like, it's, it's, it's kind of complex, right? Because, um, it turns, it kind of turns out eventually that like this, this kind of, um, open source stuff is actually, you know, perfectly compatible with, with capitalism. Like they, they, they're, they're more than happy to, um, to, to get in on this stuff because like, what it ends up doing is like creating a just a gigantic sort of library of like free stuff that you can build a company on, um, uh, like everything from like programming languages through to like database systems through to like networking stuff um, and everything. Like so, like all of the big um, companies now, like and especially especially the, the tech giants, you know, your Facebooks and Ubers and Googles and such, are built on the back of this kind of um, this kind of work. But, you know, it's like, on the one hand, you can say, oh, yeah, it's, it's great that, like, this com community effort enabled so much extra value creation. But then were, were, these, were these people compensated for the work at all? Or, like, what's, what's their kind of fate, right? Like, uh, what, what, what's the fortune of the, the people who actually created this, uh, this like, essential infrastructure? Um, yeah, it's often uh, uh, described as, like, a free rider problem, um, which is... I think a sort of deceptive metaphor. Um, it's it's much more the case that like this is more of a thing of like somebody coming in and and uh, just sort of taking what's there. You know, it's like the 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 the, the conquest of North America kind of thing, right? Like it's more what <laughs> yeah. it feels like than the free rider, because like you know the free rider is like always just lazy and blah blah blah. But like no. No, that's not really what's what's happening here. It's more like s some people saw a, a tremendous business opportunity in this commons that had been developed um, and was like completely unguarded to being exploited. Um, and 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 the the development of open source as opposed to free software uh, was a big part of that story, right? Where. Um, the, the development of, of licenses that would allow um, sort of uh, unguarded uh, a, a commercialization of uh, coders' work. Um, and that, that was one of the things that sort of resolved the conflict between the Microsoft-style approach and the, um, the GPL, uh, Richard Stallman-style approach, um, was, was uh, to, to create these licenses that didn't have uh, onerous attribution requirements and didn't um, have uh, onerous uh, requirements on corporations to uh, open source the code that they used in production. Mm. Um, yeah, so like that's, that's kind of worth explaining where... like. Um Stallman's copyleft licenses, um, the most famous probably being the GPL, um, the GNU public license, had this kind of characteristic where they're they're kind of viral or contagious. Where if a if a given work is put under that license, if it is used and modified elsewhere, then the modifier must publish the changes, which is cool when you intend for like um, 
that stuff to be to be kept in the open, but like is makes it like very dangerous for like private companies to to use. I mean, I I, I used to work at um like actually my first programming job out of uh, university was at a a shop that was like all Microsoft and fucking Windows .NET sort of um, contract work, and um, they had like just a hard rule: no GPL. Nothing, nothing, nothing is allowed in this building that's GPL because it's contagious, um, and that kind of it gets at um. Oh, and so like to to kind of finish that that sort of line of thought, like the there are other licenses that like by contrast um, are just like um, essentially just do whatever you want, like um, you know use it whatever it's like it's 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 a statement that the initial release is open and free, but like you're you're free to do whatever um, afterwards, including keeping modifications to yourself. Um, and that's the stuff that really greased the wheels for like um, big companies or just, just companies in general or like, yeah, industry to just start using this stuff um, and not worrying all that much about um, how the licenses stuff. Because like um, there's this kind of like consi- consistent sort of problem where, and it's, it's related to what you, what you were saying about like this commons being a sort of like bountiful nature into which these um, companies or engineers wandered and started plucking, you know, apples off the trees and such. That like it's actually really hard to keep track of what you're using in like a, you know, multi-thousand engineer, um, uh, you know, like engineering department in a, in a huge thing. So like, I think it's it's even just a convenience thing of like we don't want to audit everything we have in order to figure out how our usage of it relates to the producer right like this kind of the fundamental relation that's being discussed there um there's an accounting overhead that um that uh is onerous not necessarily impossible to manage but difficult enough that avoiding it is very attractive mm. right Definitely, yeah. yeah. So I, I feel like we should maybe kind of circle back a little bit to this, like, to the title of the article, actually, and this kind of, like, notion of yeoman coders, um, and especially the contrast with um, the, the artisan uh, term that comes up also. Um, and, like, so can, you, can you give us a definition of, of yeoman? Because um, it's a weird word that not many people have ever heard. <laughs> yeah, so most people, uh, when you think about the Middle Ages, you probably think about, like, lords and peasants, right? Um, there's... There's the nobility and there's the peasantry. Well, there were all kinds of different sort of um, castes of people in uh, the Middle Ages, and one of them was the yeoman, um, and they were not peasants. They were freeholding farmers. Um, so that means that they were not in a, a position of, uh, you know, subjugation to the same degree that uh, that the peasants were. Um and uh, generally speaking, the way that they sort of made their, their living was to do their farming. And then on top of that, they had a military obligation to some lord. Um, uh, and uh, so they were kind of like a well-off uh, stratum of farmers in the Middle Ages uh, who were reliably... Um, fairly reliably uh, conservative, or like I guess that's not really a relevant uh, term there, but uh, they were reliable soldiers who could be, you know, trusted to um, side with the lords uh, over the peasantry. Um, and so, yeah, so they're, they're well-off farmers, right? Um, and it, um, in the sort of American context, um, 
you know, uh, Jefferson thought of the American, uh, like, petty producers, like the, the small-holding farmers, um, as as yeoman farmers, right? Um, that, that, that America could be a yeoman republic, right? Um, uh, and so this gets back to the um, Californian ideology, right, uh, where, where uh, the, uh, um, the authors of that article describe how that yeoman ethos or that Jeffersonian ethos was so prevalent in early tech in like the 1990s uh, tech sector. Um, uh, and uh, really, this article is kind of using the history of open source to question uh, that assumption and, and sort of reevaluate uh what the real position of, of, of coders is. Yeah. So like, it's sort of, um, it seems to suggest that like, like, because like the, the yeoman sort of thing doesn't seem to actually be the case, but like, it might be that, um, some coders like our, the, the sort of coders involved in open source more closely resemble, um, like artisanal workers, which is, um, which is kind of funny because like, um, like I remember like a, a good couple of years ago, like maybe five years back, the, the JavaScript sort of world was um, really taken by this this sort of surge of like um, libraries and library authors describing their work as like artisanal, like handcrafted artisanal JavaScript. And I think it was it was partially just an uptick in the kind of like general hipsterness that um, was characteristic of about five years ago. But like it's interesting because you can kind of see the mask slip a bit there, right? That like people's true desires were revealed, right? That like. And I, I think this, um, I, I, th I think the reason that like a lot of people do open source work is because they do desire a kind of mode of production and a sort of relationship to their product that's much closer to what artisans had, which is to say that it's less alienated, right? Like, um, because the, the majority of actual tech work um, in the real world is this kind of like very very drab sort of factory labor almost where you have um, just sort of spend your days wiring libraries together and there's not much autonomy to it. Um, but we're, we're, what we're trying to get at here with this like yeoman and, and artisanal stuff is that like those, those categories of people had much more autonomy than the lower masses did um, and had more, more of a sort of a say in what was going on um, or just a, t a teeny bit more power. Um, yeah. It's, it's uh they were they were producers uh they weren't you know shopkeepers or something like that but uh <clears throat> they were uh nevertheless quite privileged compared to your average peasant um and uh that sort of does square with um that does square with the position of tech workers in that period from like the mid nineties into like the, uh, next 15 years or so. Right. Like the, this, this sort of privilege, uh, stratum of the working class. Um, and, and, and the, the point of view of many tech workers at that time, uh, was uh, sort of consonant with this kind of Jeffersonian conservatism, right? Like, oh, like the the they they saw themselves as different from your average rabble and uh, tended to uh, support um, property capital over labor. Yeah, and like, um, I mean, we we covered a lot of that in in 
that episode two, you know, like what near almost a year ago, um, or nine months ago with like, um, about when we were talking about the Californian ideology, but like, I mean, even then it was sort of concluded that like that, that's a fairly hollow and contradictory sort of, um, set of ideas that there, that were being held, um, by those people. Cause like, yeah, there's like this, like this notion of like these digital artisans and all this sort of stuff or like the, the yeoman, uh, the yeoman sort of a uh, code plowsman out on the wild frontier it's kind of not not actually the case at all right like that um the the huge majority of this actual industry is just sort of like proletarian like labor with with, with no adornments right like and i mean yeah it's it's slightly above the sort of level of like god i don't know uh like a, a journalist or a teacher or a almost any other career you can name because like that's that's actually something i get out of um get out of my like a lot of my colleagues the like the, the remarks along the lines of that this this tech stuff like is kind of absurd in in its sort of like being like just that that little bit above um you know the most other careers that are actually available but there's not that there's not really that much in the way of actual autonomy to it right because like any other worker we receive instruction from on high and um and carry it out, you know, with like not a not a huge amount of actual leeway. So it's it's kind of interesting that like um, yeah, I, I kind of like have a hard time sort of agreeing fully with the with the article because like in my experience, like the majority of coders are neither yeoman nor artisan, right? Yeah, and um, I guess an interesting point that sort of came up in our readings regarding that is like the effect that the success of open source has had on on that dynamic right because in this ford foundation report that uh the jacobin article cites um the the report is uh, called uh roads and bridges um uh and it's it's a report that's basically looking at the problem of open source software not being adequately uh, funded and given enough sort of infrastructure support and how that gives that creates problems for capitalism right because you know it's a ford foundation they're trying to figure out how to address the contradictions of capitalism to the advantage of capital that's what they do um uh so this this report talks about how the success of github right coming back to github and uh the success of stack exchange um did sort of popularize open source software and create a lot more workplaces where you you it, they didn't have that ban right like maybe they had a ban on GPL but they didn't have a ban on other open source licenses right um, it, you know it wasn't a Microsoft thing where you had to have you know Microsoft license stuff only .NET only uh, that kind of thing um, and. So that was a great victory, in a sense, for these these coders who who wanted to have more control over their own stack, right? Like what what software were they using? They wanted to be able to hack on the software that they were using themselves, right? Like oh, they wanted that kind of autonomy, that artisanal autonomy uh, that we've been talking about. Uh, but part of being an artisan is having trade secrets. The master has to have something to teach the apprentice mm -hmm. that is is protected information and knowledge. Otherwise, 
there is no guild, right? Like, you know, the guild falls apart because the, what becomes common knowledge no longer has the value it used to have. Um, and and in that success of, 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 you know, seeing open source explode and seeing uh, GitHub and Stack Exchange become these kind of clearing houses for the general intellect, um, they in a in in a many ways um, coders undermined the material conditions for their own production of the commons, right? So they went from a position of being marginalized, right, and and under under sort of like legal and um, uh, rhetorical threat from capital to being in a position of being embraced by capital, but then seeing the conditions of production that they had before evaporate because what happened was capital was like okay like there's this huge commons that's available like i see your point this is this is obviously valuable uh, there's like a number of benefits to using open source software that that all makes sense um so what we're going to do is we're going to hire a bunch of new coders because your labor costs are too high um and uh, we're just going to get them to copy and paste and sort of assemble little bits and pieces of the code that you have created in the commons, right? And, and, and you get a, a, a stratified uh, tech sector uh, in this arrangement where there are the, the sort of remnants or uh, kind of like privileged uh, stratum of coders who actually, at some deep level, understand coding. Right? They they understand how to hack. They have enough resources, ideally at least, um, to maintain what they make and are pr producing um, the sort of backbone projects that uh, other coders download from GitHub and stick together into something that their bosses need, right? Yeah. Um, That's, yeah. Um, that is absolutely stuff that I recognize from my own career. Like, definitely. That, like, um, when I got into, like, got into the sort of tech world, um, I came in at that sort of um, level of, like, taking the open source stuff as the default. Like, I got into, like, Ruby and Python and all this sort of stuff. Um, definitely regarded the the proprietary stuff with, with major suspicion. But... Um, it took a long time to realize that actually, like, although, although, like, at the back of my mind, there was always the words open source, open source, open source, like, thrumming away in the background, that um, the actual day-to-day -day mechanics of doing the job had nothing to do with that, right? Like, the, the your interaction with open source was to pull a library from, from GitHub or from the, the sort of, uh, the repository, um, but that the, the actual job was simply wiring libraries together, really. Like, there was actually very little in the way of, like, novel design work to be done in um in sort of satisfying business needs and yeah like we we then sort of look upwards to this like i think there, there is definitely a um kind of pseudo artisan tier that are like yeah like you said are kind of like maintained by the, the these massive corporations like i suppose the the people that develop all the big javascript frameworks and what have you but um yeah i mean a, a big uh, a, a big sort of thing to point to is like how you know the linux linux foundation brags about how much of linux kernel development is is um corporate supported right um that that there there is actual um money 
coming in to support the open source development of the Linux kernel. Yeah. Um, um, I've just thought, thought of a slightly more sort of obscure um, uh, example, but like um, the kind of story of uh, Foundation DB is pretty interesting, where it was like um, a really, really cool set of database technologies. But apparently, like, basically, the timeline is that like the core developers like developed it when they were in school, more or less, and like got a start on it, like founded a company to develop it a bit further, and then got acquired by Apple, and it was all brought in house. Um, and they've been working on it since like that was that was a good six years ago, seven years ago. And then this year it was reopen sourced from Apple. So it was it was like it was so fucking valuable that they bought the project and dragged it in house. And like there was a big kerfuffle when that happened because all their repos got deleted off of GitHub and stuff. And like it all went in interior. Right. But so they've been essentially just just bankrolled outright by um by apple and like internally apparently like foundation db is the kind of bedrock of itunes and that sort of stuff um so yeah apple poured poured money and money and money into developing this this technology that was initially developed by like child geniuses essentially but the point is that like i mean uh, me and my colleagues and the sort of people around me sort of like I think a lot of us wonder like how do we get to that tier like how do we how do we get out of this fucking grind of just sort of doing sort of mediocre sort of work um, that that doesn't have a lot of prospect for that kind of uh, autonomy and like the, the, the answer is you don't right because what happens is you actually you you get born as those foundation DB guys or whatever um, and you're you're either on that trajectory into that kind of upper tier of like. Um, I, I, either either those guys or like the kind of um, uh, conference circuit dudes who are like their most of their job is actually kind of um, doing like developer relations and like uh, pimping out these these like JavaScript frameworks or whatever. But yeah, so that there, we, we are kind of raised to believe that there is this kind of um, we're all in this big community together, right? Like this open source community, and that if you pitch in and you sort of do your bit, then you kind of get the the good stuff. The good stuff is implied to be you know, jobs or whatever, or like kind of high, high flying positions. But the reality seems to be much closer to like, yeah, there, there is a small cadre of, of like artisans at that kind of like very high tier, like getting like a tier that's high enough that you can have all your flights and tickets paid for to go to conferences, right? Like that's, that's quite a bit above what most people's experience of their workplace actually is. Um, and then the rest of us are, you know, honest to God, just ordinary workers who, who who aren't going to become startup billionaires um and it might be healthy to acknowledge that you know for <laughs> for the rest of us that um right so i i think that there that that's absolutely correct and there's there's really uh sort of two points there uh that come up in the in the readings we did which um are one to what extent are those sort of like core art, artisanal uh, workers just not compensated for their work right like they're you know the, the the big one that people point to is like open ssl right like prior to the core infrastructure initiative there was this really important uh open source library called open ssl um and it was just this like this poor guy uh, slaving around uh, away on this thing so that you know multi-billion dollar corporations uh, could 
just, you know, unthinkingly employ his work day in, day out without any compensation at all, right? And, you know, it just basically got to a point of absolute desperation. Um, and I believe that was what, per, that was all, like, the whole thing went down with, like, the the heart bleed uh, bug, is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, so that was, yeah, um, yeah. so for a bit of clarity, like, OpenSSL is um, a security and cryptography technology that secures, like, basically all communications on the planet by this point (laughs) you know um it's impossible to use a piece of technology without your data traveling through something that pipes through open ssl you know and when when you're when you're in a web browser and you get that little green padlock at the top left that's um that's kind of backed by that as well but um yeah it turned out there were gaping holes in this thing um and like that's that's fine because like it was what one or two dudes who were working full-time and getting like no support whatsoever um, yeah, and so you have that that kind of like art, quote unquote, artisanal labor. I don't know if that's even an appropriate analogy because it's not like they had a patron they were working for or customers, right? <laughs> they very, just, more, they were, very much didn't have a patron. Exactly yeah, the they were doing it out of like volunteer labor. <laughs> yeah. Versus, say, like the core developer of like Go, right? Uh, which is like a very different kind of arrangement. Um, both open source projects, right? But very, very different arrangements. So that is a that is a divide to consider. And there there are a lot of of, of developers out there who started up these these open source projects as things that they were doing out of interest. They blew up, and then they end up with a huge headache of having support requests. To, to answer from multi-billion dollar corporations who aren't paying them anything to um, <laughs> yeah. to actually answer the support requests, right? Um, so, like, that, that whole dynamic is there. Um, and then also you have the dynamic between the established open source developers at these, these mega corporations who um, are in a very different position from uh, your sort of gluing... Uh, frameworks together, uh, you know, average proletarian uh, coders, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so, so there's a lot of like, um, there's a lot of questions that come up about like, you know, what the actual state of the industry is. But there, there's a general sense that there's kind of a crisis going on of 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 the infrastructure not really being sustainable, um, and that. There's all these questions of like, how do you have sort of quote unquote communist production, right? Like production for a commons in a capitalist system, right? That's that's kind of what it comes down to. And the answer is typically you need patronage, right? You need the people who um, who actually have capital, right? The, the, the capitalist class, the people who actually, you know, accrue the benefits of, of surplus value um, to redistribute that value to the producers in the commons in order to um, make sure that, that the commons can work. And, you know, like this is this is a question that um, comes up with regards to, say, uh, like, you know, road maintenance or uh, the development of science. Right, like, because you know, this is a this this is a, a similar field, right, that to, to scientific production, where there was this huge question in, in the 20th century of like, how do we support scientific development, right, in the absence of it being run by gentlemen scholars who live off of the um, uh, 
live off of the the produce of uh, uh, of their tenants and and of the the workers who provide them surplus value um how do we support science and and so it was a contradiction right because capitalism doesn't have an affordance for that kind of of production right like you could try to you could try to license out everything and make it all very proprietary and so on and so forth but the the actual solutions that they ended up with was like semi-corporate semi-state sponsorship of science right um and and that's an ongoing contradiction but uh yeah it's a it's a serious problem and it 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 goes beyond just the internal structure of the workforce uh in tech and to sort of like broader questions of the entire sustainability of this system of production yeah it's um it's really really tricky because like um i think it's it also sort of gives us maybe some indication of the kind of problems we need to think about with like going forward into a sort of uh, glorious uh, communist future where, like, this is an example of a field in which um, you have kind of strange relations to production where, like, the thing you're producing isn't strictly a commodity because it's not destroyed on use, you know? And it's like there's non-linearities introduced because um, copying a software artifact is essentially costless. And, like, it's sort of, like, we, we already see that, like, companies... Existing companies interacting with open source have this really hard time accounting for what they're actually using. When the question comes up of, like, how are we going to get these companies to, like, contribute back a fair proportion of their revenue to this commons that they're harvesting from, it's actually really hard to even answer the question of what are they harvesting. Yeah, it's like... uh... It's like when uh, Marx uh, talks about how, like, science is like a free gift to capital. Yeah, right? yeah. basically. Uh, <laughs> like, this is exactly it's it. like, oh, like, uh, like, I don't know, code comes in, code goes out. Uh, like, yeah, whatever. It's, as long as we're, we're paying or we're getting money from our clients, it doesn't matter. Right? I mean, pretty much um, right. So, like, um, I mean, I think the, the, the question, the, the problem would solve itself in a, like, totally automated like post-value form communized society but in the in the interim like in the in the very immediate future of like um how to make this kind of production work in you know in in the immediate future and also like as a case study for the kind of problems we're going to hit with converting a high-tech society to a like um you know post-money post-value um sort of a system of organization this is kind of instructive, you know, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and and very very tricky, which is the kind of upsetting part, um, because yeah, I just I just don't know like um, how you kind of square that um, those kind of circles. Yeah, and I mean they in the Ford Foundation report they they say things like oh well we need metrics of use to see which. Which uh, projects are actually like keystone projects that need need sponsorship, need patronage? But I mean, there's going to be contradictions implied in that as well, right? Well, right. So, um, like, I mean, like, I was I was kind of remarking in the green room that like it's 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 on this point of like you know measure measuring the actual usage of the infrastructure. It's kind of strange because you would think that a company like Red Hat or Canonical would be in a good position to do that sort of thing in the current um, system, but they they don't. And, like, I mean, it is what it is. But even if they did, like, if the package installer reports that you installed, gosh, I don't know, like, 
MySQL and OpenSSL, like, okay, fine. But like, in what proportion are those actually used to create the value that the new product is creating? And it's, it's going it, to, I don't know, it seems really hard to kind of actually track down um, exactly what the sort of meaning of that is. Um, but the, the recommendations here at the sort of end of that report are kind of like quite inoffensive, you know, like, I mean, there's like building, yeah. aware, building awareness and educating key stockholders <laughs> of like, that, that, that is a good point though, because like, I mean, people were unaware of the open SSL problem until it became a glaring, glaring problem, like a radiant white hot problem that nobody could ignore anymore. Um, Yes. So, I mean, especially outside of tech companies, there are many companies that use open source and have like the only the dimmest conception of how all this stuff works. Right. So. So, yes, it, it is possible to sort of like boost up the profile of these projects and, and get get uh, corporations in other sectors of the economy to maybe uh, chip in some money to help out the developers. And, you know, like whatever. OK, that's fine. Um, like uh, but. I think fundamentally, uh, it's it's not going to solve these these issues. Um, but to to sort of get back to this this point of uh, of the labor force, right, and of of uh, organizing strategy, like what you know, because like we have these Ford Foundation suggestions about like, oh well, we need metrics, we need patronage, we need blah blah blah. Well, the pr proposal that is given by this Jacobin article, uh, the Mueller article, um, is is uh, of a uh, centrally organized and democratic tech sector, uh, which might solve many uh, significant problems with software that neither the voluntaristic open source ethos or the profit maximizing prerogatives can address. Right. So. Okay, right? Like, you know, like if we, we think about what does, uh, you know, what does communist tech labor look like, we need to think about what organizing looks like. And we, we talked a little bit about organizing in our notes from below episode, right? Uh, but I think that this is, whereas that article we read in the, in the notes from below episode was looking at tech uh, as, a, as an industry, this is very much more like looking at coding as a craft, right? It's looking at only at that like productive workers uh, subsection of the tech industry. Um, and what uh, their suggestion is, what Mueller's suggestion is here, is to say like, okay, well, what if we sort of, instead of framing uh, tech workers as yeomen, right, as, as Jeffersonian individuals homesteading on the digital frontier, um, what if we frame them as sort of Proudhonist uh, artisans, right? And so, you know, uh, Proudhon uh, was one of like the, the earliest uh, anarchists uh, he was um, very popular uh, among like the the sort of working and artisan class of, of Paris uh, in, the, in the in the sort of mid to late nineteenth century, um, and uh, he he's he's quite no, well known for his his sort of maxim that pro property is theft, uh, but generally speaking. He was interested in a society of sort of small producers who were working in like a fair and just marketplace, right? Um, uh, and and it's 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 comprehensible when you think about like okay, well, if you assume that that tech workers are 
in this kind of privileged sort of artisanal position, right? Uh, um, uh, and that this has led them to sort of Jeffersonian thinking. Like, why don't we instead appeal to, you know, sort of their common interests as workers um, of small producers who are in relatively privileged status, uh, just like Proudhon did in, in Paris back in the day, right? Like, because, uh, you know, he was appealing to workers in small workshops who, yes, they weren't ex- incredibly well off, but they were certainly better off than many of the, 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 the peasants out in the countryside. Um uh, the the sort of problems though are the problems we've already talked about, right? The problems of, well, what about all these coders who are just copying and, and pasting code together and, and 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 assembling bits of libraries? Like, you know, they seem to be much more amenable to a kind of more modern organizing strategy, the kind of industrial organizing strategy that we talked about in Notes from Below, than a craft unionism. Uh, or a, um, yeah, like basically a craft unionism kind of strategy. Um, it's, and yeah, so in addition to that, there's the question of what do you do about those coders who actually are in a privileged position, right? Like the, the sort of artisans who are, who do have big time corporate sponsorship, right? The Linux kernel developers, the, you know, the core go development team at, at Google, um, can like are those people just sort of irredeemably uh tied to the interests of capital or are they not because there's a divide in the workforce and how do you address that divide that seems to be a significant um organizing issue that uh that this this article in particular doesn't really get into Mm. yeah and i was that it's a really it's a really interesting um problem right and like I, i would i would like to hope that um you know the the latter category aren't kind of beyond reaching, but um, I think I was I was going to kind of suggest that like yeah that like the the open source ethos has always had this sort of like inherently sort of left wing ideology to it like from like the, it's not an accident that Stalin called it copy left right but um, I have also encountered more than enough kind of. Um, People who are, like, weirdly, like, extreme fans of Stallman and, like, are, like, hardcore committed to all those kind of, like, you know, socialized sort of uh, code sort of principles, but are, but are also, like, kind of right-wing reactionaries and, like, deeply resent the suggestion that open source is a sort of, like, communistic um, endeavor, right? So... Maybe maybe people aren't exactly beyond being completely fucking overwhelmed by uh, contradictory ideologies, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah, and I think that that maybe gets to that idea of sort of like um, trade secrets, right? Like like or like or like uh, a craft interest, right? That that you know because it's perfectly perfectly possible to have craft unionists who are extremely reactionary, right? Like, because the thing is, like, yes, like, generally in, in you know, free and open software, uh, open source software, uh, it, it's, it is the case that, that, that enthusiasts want to ex- spread the use of the software as far as possible. But, like, uh, I, you know, a thing you often encounter as well is that um, it's, it's deeply elitist, um, and uh, it is uh, people are very tied up with their their status as, as quote unquote technical people, um, 
uh, and 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 very tied up with that that idea that they are not just your average schlub, right? Like so so it is it is possible to have a a commons within a a clearly delineated sector of society that nevertheless uh, promotes rather reactionary thinking, right? Like it's it's perfectly possible for giant corporations to found a cooperative, right? Like, <laughs> look at Best Western. Best Western is a cooperative, right? It's an owner's cooperative. Uh, it is not a progressive <laughs> political organization, no. right? Um, so sharing does not necessarily imply left-wing politics. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, like, um, I was just sort of thinking there that, like, um, there's also the kind of angle where, like... Generally, trying to trying to get through to someone by uh, like appealing to them slash admonishing them for like being in a privileged position is a real fucking dice roll because you know sometimes they'll 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 listen and they'll sit there and do the mental calculus and they'll go yeah you know what I I am in a privileged position and I'm gonna fucking pull up the drawbridge <laughs> you know where does that really get you anyway yeah, yeah exactly. right like it, it's yeah. like I I I mean I have no interest in sort of like privilege guilt politics like i mean that is not going to alter the situation it's just going to be like oh well i am pretty well off aren't i i guess i should donate to charity it's like okay i mean fine whatever but that that is not an organizing strategy mm, <laughs> right definitely not though because yeah uh, <laughs> um it's yeah it, it can so like i think but to, to kind of touch back to what we're talking about here that like if I think it could, it could be actually kind of dangerous to appeal to um, this uh, yeoman slash artisanal sort of thing of like um, trying to re trying to reinforce that coders are a sort of special class that have uh, have this unique position. I think it's probably much more fruitful to radicalize the sort of vast base of like you know like ordinary proletarian workers um, of coders you know that like who really really honestly don't have that sort of artisanal. Uh, positioning and who in fact yearn for it right like that's that's why people go home at the weekend to you know hack on small open source projects or to like contribute to things because they they, they sort of do yearn for a like right so that's the thing right that like pe people do yearn for non-alienated labor right like and for uh to, to not be quite so miserable about what they spend their time doing um i think you could channel that away from the current way it's channeled where um you know, the promise is that if you if you contribute to the community and if you play ball and if you, you know, are, are a good um, good player in this sort of open source world, then you'll be rewarded with a, a job or whatever, um, or you'll be rewarded with um, notoriety and all this kind of stuff. Oh, like, you'll, you'll be the next cool guy who invents, excuse me, um, invents the next cool programming language. It's been channeled away from that sort of stuff because it's ultimately a hollow promise, right? Like, you're not, you're, you're not gonna, you're not gonna rise out of the ranks, right? Like, you're, you're a schlub just like me and everyone else, you know. But channel it instead into like actual kind of class consciousness that, like, no, like let's let's be realistic about what our relation is to our work and to our employers, and kind of you know crack on with the job of organizing around those uh, those actualities instead of around the kind of illusions of the um, Silicon Valley promise. Yeah, and it, it like you know sort of two points there. One is like yes, that that sort of gets back to this idea of industrial unionism that we saw in Notes from Below, and second, it's not the case that privileged or I don't know how to say privileged, but um, 
uh, that well-to-do or uh, <laughs> not completely immiserated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, strat- strata of the working class who are relatively well-off are not necessarily always reactionary. That's just simply not true, right? Like, you look at railway workers who are very much like the coders of, of, of the late 19th, early 20th century, and who like you know they did they had the same thing which was control over a major infrastructure uh, system right and that did give them a relatively privileged status but they were also you know quite militant and often communist like even now you look at like what is the uh, group of workers that is um, at the forefront of fighting Macron in in France it's it's the railway workers right. Um, and like, you know, in, in Japan, uh, when the Japanese government privatized uh, the JR um, and they broke the unions, that was like a notoriously violent and horrible episode, which is what they had to do in order to break them because they had power. Right. Um, and and that didn't mean that they were just reactionary yeomen. Right. <laughs> um, so it, it's it's not impossible for a sort of cross working class alliance to be developed. It's just a question of how to do it. And that actually that actually reminds me. And we, we can we can close a big loop that's been open for the entire running of the series. Um, that was actually one of the sort of inspirations for wanting to do the show in the first place. That um, like I'd kind of noticed that um, in a lot of left podcasts or whatever, um, or a lot of left sort of discourse. The, the sort of meme of the kind of like Silicon Valley chud was, um, or the sort of Silicon Valley reactionary was becoming a bit too sort of prevalent. And I kind of thought that like, it, it really can't be the case that, you know, like exactly what you described, it, it can't be the case that anyone who's not, you know, working minimum wage is by default a reactionary. And in fact, like for, <laughs> right. for, a, for, a, for an actual positive program to, you know, get us into a post-value form communism or whatever, you know, you kind of need to be able to convince everyone, essentially, like to, to within a rounding error, right? Like everyone in the society, including and especially probably including the um, upper stratum of skilled workers who, you know, maybe don't, um, you know, don't don't fully identify with um, the sort of the very lowest tier either. You know, that like um, there has to be sort of room for like convincing people in sort of like. Uh, you know, non-manual labor jobs of the value of um, of a socialist future, right? Like that has to be that has to be the case <laughs> because otherwise you're going to go fucking anarcho-primitivist or something, and that's going to be your shitty future. <laughs> like... Right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it only took what twenty episodes to close that loop, but uh, there we are. <laughs> kind of one of one of the reasons for wanting to do this. Um, yeah. Um, this is important stuff, right? Like the the stuff that's kind of um, I think I think it's it's a, it's a good article, um, but like the the stuff that it's the stuff that all spins out from it, like all these considerations about uh, labor relations in high technology, are all crucial um, to developing a program. Um, there's also so like kind of later in the article, it kind of loops back around to the centralization and sort of network effects bit about the Microsoft acquisition of GitHub. On the, on the one hand, we, we, you know, we're, we're meant to sort of believe that these are like mutualist sort of communities and gift economies, but like their their infrastructure is 
entirely subsumed within capital, right? Like that, to, to such an extent that the entirety of the infrastructure can be bought as a commodity. <laughs> and uh, yes, it is, it is one coherent organization. It is and, a single unit that you can grab with your hand and like move somewhere else. Like it's yeah, and it's, and, and generally it attempts to um, you know use free software or open source software to create sort of like self-hosted alternatives and stuff. Like, yeah, they find some purchase here and there when there's like a scandal. Like I remember back, I don't remember exactly when it was, it was like in the early 2010s, there was like a major scandal with GitHub and then like some people moved over to, what was it? Like Git... GitLab. Was it? Yeah. GitLab, yeah. GitLab sort of grew in adoption a little bit, but then people just went back to GitHub, right? Like it... That the, the network effects are real and powerful. Mm. Um, GitLab are sort of a, sort of an interesting example of um, a company that sort of um, manages to navigate these pathways with some some sort of grace. That like it's essentially an open core model where like you there is an open source version that is um, like ninety percent of the features, and then there's the the paid version, which is the the last ten percent. Um, or you can get like licensing, or like you can get a support contract for the full version that you host yourself and such. And that seems to be like a relatively promising uh, way of, in the short term, making these kind of companies work where they, they are committed to creating this good, this commons, but also like feeding themselves, <laughs> you know? Yes. Uh, I, it has definitely has its uses, but there, there is a section in the Ford foundation report about why that is not a generally viable business strategy. Uh, so like, it works best in industries where, yeah, you can provide a service contract, or if this one thing fails, your production is going to seize up completely, right? So, like, if GitLab goes down, or if there's a major bug introduced into GitLab, and there isn't adequate, um, uh, you know, labor hours behind getting things fixed. Uh, that is going to seize up your entire infrastructure, right? Your, your production is just going to quit working, right? If it is something that is less, uh, like either less frequently updated or less forward-facing or um, uh, something that is is maybe a part of your pr project but not absolutely core, it's much harder to use that kind of business model. But it, it does work for some, some organizations, absolutely. Yeah. Um, um, I guess that sort of explains why they're like every feature release they've had recently is all like new um, project management and workflow stuff, like really burrowing into that kind of position of being the essential part of infrastructure that um, that you just can't do without. Um, and it's, it's like you know another example is Red Hat, right? Red Hat is in a similar kind of of position and is also a open source company or even like a free software company that um, has made a go of it. But, like, after Red Hat, there have been pretty much, like, just a handful of successful Linux companies that have come along, right? Because yeah, like, you've got Canonical with Ubuntu, but then that's that's basically bankrolled by Shuttleworth. Like, he's a, he's a billionaire in his own right, and he just sort of feeds money to the organization, so it doesn't seem to be actually all that successful. In yeah, well, and, and to the extent that it is successful, it's successful in terms of its server-side uh, stuff, right? Um, 
which was not the intention of the company getting off the ground. Um, so, so yeah, so there's limitations on that kind of model, which is why the Ford Foundation report sort of gets back to this idea of patronage, um, because, like, yeah, that'll work for some companies, but it's not going to work for everybody. Yeah, so I guess, like, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I was, I was going to sort of ask, like, well, what, what do we sort of do for a... Um you know, a, a sort of socialist vision of this sort of stuff. and um... Well, I mean, I think w- one thing is at the very least we can say that in a, you know, in a socialist system, the person who is hacking away on an open source passion project is not going to have to start a GoFundMe to pay for their funeral costs. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, <laughs> like, like <laughs> you know, um, like the the Ford Foundation approach is to say, like, oh, well, we need to like find Keystone projects and target them and support those people. And it's like, well, maybe, but also, like, what if we just made it so that people didn't starve if they didn't have have a job, right? Like that that, that is that is a minimum thing that we could do in order to support positive, uh, sustainable open source development. Yeah. I guess I was um, I was sort of like missing the wood for the trees there a bit of, of like well you know wondering what this kind of um, you know high tech sort of work looks like in the sort of deep future um, but like oh no, in that's, the deep that's, future <laughs> that's the that's the immediate sort of thing of like well people not starving while they try to maintain the infrastructure that um, powers so much other sort of uh, endeavors <laughs> would be you know pretty good. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's at least something we could point to is like, <laughs> okay, you know, maybe even if you are a, uh, a rather well-to-do uh, tech worker, uh, <laughs> maybe you don't want uh, the, the the contributors to your project to be starving starving to death. Um, mm, probably not, no, yeah. because you know, starving people don't do do all that sort of great work, um, especially especially not for the intellectual sort of stuff. Um, yeah, like, is there is there anything we've sort of missed that we should kind of go over? I'm kind of aware that, like, there's a lot of spindly sort of issues that um, branch out in all sorts of different directions from this stuff. Yeah, I feel like it's it's a little bit too... Um too as you say spindly or just a diffuse there's too many too many tangents you could go down with this uh, i think we should just uh just uh wrap it here and uh, see what people have to say about it yeah definitely um and yeah i think like if um i have a feeling this one might spawn some sort of like um incoming kind of uh, comments or whatever but yeah if 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 listeners do have um anything to kind of contribute do ping us on twitter or whatever um we're we're at we're, we're on twitter at giunitpod um, we're on Facebook as General Intellect Unit, and um, I don't know. We're on we're on all the podcasting apps, so you can kind of um, subscribe and and download all the the other episodes if you haven't done so already. Um, and yeah, definitely get in touch if you've got some sort of insight into any particular bit of this that um, that we might have missed, or um, or just a perspective on um, on where you might see this going um, in the future. Because um, I do I do sort of maintain that this is like perhaps a an in, a really interesting sort of case study, uh, or like open source in general, is an interesting case study of like um, you know the, the the intersection of like high tech production and a sort of commons um, that could could inform some sort of like research for you know what um, fully automated luxury communism might look like. Um, but I think we're we're a bit away from that at the moment. Um, and also like in the if you've been if you have been enjoying the show, maybe uh, think about going to patreon.com/slash general intellect unit. 
and uh, throwing us a, a few bucks a month uh, to disalienate us from our labor. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, it just it helps it helps to pay for like server costs and all this sort of stuff, and uh, and for buying books, which are super expensive. Um, yes. Uh, but yeah, I guess that's it. Um, so yeah, thanks listeners for, for coming along with us and we'll uh, see you again in two weeks. Bye.